Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Mindy, what headlines have you been following lately? Last week was JP Morgan's annual healthcare conference, which is a week-long get-together, basically, and this time it was virtual, but where many healthcare companies get to showcase what their plans are for the coming year and talk about interesting topics, right, that are really kind of bubbling up within a variety of healthcare sectors. One thing that I would love to just chat about briefly, I think that hasn't received enough news, but it certainly was a theme in the conference, and that was the state of the healthcare workforce. I think it was in some ways really sobering to realize that we are now almost two years into battling COVID, and the amount of commitment and dedication that healthcare workers continue to display as they effectively carry the weight of the nation on our shoulders. It was really evident through many of the discussion points at the conference that, you know, obviously healthcare providers have been at the front line and have been responding heroically. You think about what the consequences of that have been and that many healthcare workers have lost their lives working on the front line in these treatment situations. And I think about the idea of burnout, right? And we've talked about it before and that that bubbled up loud and clear. It's like, how much can our healthcare system take before we just recognize that burnout will have long standing consequences? And I think this becomes an epic problem that just is continuing to mount that goes beyond staffing shortages that we already knew were going to be presenting themselves prior to COVID. And it just accelerates those staffing shortages. And I think what the cost of that is going to be in terms of our ability to really have a healthcare system that can be high performing and, you know, what the actual cost will be to health systems that have to think about how they continue to keep their healthcare workers safe. They keep them engaged and what all of that means, right. And just a from a financial picture, in addition to the human factor. As we entered the the two weeks of the JP Morgan conference, you know, there's a lot of studies that came out that is sobering at best and kind of scary at worst. And just this idea that these healthcare workers are on their, you know, going on their, we started the pandemic in 2020 and it's 2022, just have day-to-day challenges. But th- there was a Mayo Clinic study just as we entered the new year that talked about some really jarring findings. And it's something like there's an intention of like one out of three physicians and nurses are reporting like a really clear intention that they're going to reduce hours. And I think 40% of nurses intend to leave their practice altogether in the next two years. Now we know that could change based on the way this could happen, but a already kind of house of cards, if you will, workforce that has intentions of leaving, you know, there's going to need to be some really systemic changes and ways of working. There was so much going on at JP Morgan, and and there was also a lot of conversation around hospitals at home as well. So as we talk about the, the workforce and protecting this incredibly important workforce in the future, there's also a where will care happen in the future. And so there's all these things at a confluence and happening at the same time. So 
completely agree that it was very important that there was a little bit of a shift this year in the conversation thesis around healthcare workforce. And I think it's it's like the perfect storm is brewing, right? In terms of, of what's going on in the provider sector. And I think initially the Fauci effect, which mm-hmm. last year we saw full scale when the number of applicants for medical and nursing schools increased tremendously. I don't know that we're gonna to continue to see that effect as the solution, right, to the shortage that we were already confronting. And then, you know, the exacerbation of that shortage when you have so many in the healthcare workforce that are just completely burned out and have this intention to actually leave and do other things. And the other part of this that we're not talking about is the role that pharmacists have played. You go into a a pharmacy today and they are working 12 hour shifts with no break. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear CVS make an announcement that between the hours of 12 and one, they were going to have a forced basically lunch hour for their pharmacy area just because of the the pace that pharmacists have been going at as well during this two-year battle with COVID. I agree, Mindy. I think that we don't spend enough time talking about pharmacy, pharmacists, farm technologists, and, and the role they play this world. I think you and I have talked offline about you know, there's there's a grand opportunity for disruption there in the processing and transaction of prescriptions. I do not have the study in front of me, but a very scant amount of percentage of pharmacy transactions happen online, which is shocking, right? When you think about the world that we live in now, I think that's ripe for disruption. And um, additionally to that, you know, you and I talked about in many other developed nations, pharmacists can prescribe medications. And that happens in a few states in the United States, but it's not ubiquitous across our country. And, you know, there's just a lot of big shifts that I think will happen in the future as we see folks actually live up to the license of which they work at. And one of them is prescribing drugs. And I just think that that is something we'll see in the future, you know, that will make them busier. But, you know, you think about every study indicates that the community pharmacist is still the most trusted healthcare worker. And so I think we need to catch up to that from a policy perspective as well. Think about the tension, Ryan, between the aspirations, right, that pharmacy has to become healthcare hubs, right, to expand their service offering and to be able to take on, you know, in some ways more primary care responsibility. And now we're suggesting that maybe pharmacists could also be prescribers of medicines. I mean, at some point, there is a a natural tension that occurs there between capacity Right? and the ability to do all of these things and reality where they are now, what the, the transition needs to be to afford pharmacies the opportunity to actually reach those aspirations and do so in a healthy way right, for their pharmacies and pharmacy techs. So I, I think it's going to be something that plays out and that's not talked about a lot either, but it's something you and I are pl- paying close attention to because we see how pharmacies are really kind of reframing their role in the healthcare system and their strategy suggests that they are going to go much broader in terms of capabilities with, you know, across the value chain. I would challenge any of our listeners to go to their nearest CVS Walgreens or Rite Aid and look at the line of prescription cars that are outside and then walk into the, to the pharmacist or the retail health hub and see where all the people are. And it's always at the pharmacy. When you look across the ecosystem of healthcare workers, who is the best 
and most knowledgeable or has the information at their fingertips on drug interaction and substitutes and, and generics, it is the pharmacist. They're, you go to a pharmacy and they have that information at their, at their fingertips, yet they're still not prescribing drugs. And there are also benefits investigators. I mean, think about how many times the prescription gets hung up because of the benefit confirmation. So I just think it's it's such an interesting topic and I'm glad it was covered in this conference. I think whether it's reshaping what our healthcare workforce could look like in the in the near and short term, the impacts of COVID are going to reverberate across the industry for a long time to come. And you know, that was apparent in some of the other topics as well. Of course heard a lot of news like we expected on what's next for the COVID vaccine variants, what's next for COVID treatment, a lot of investment as we might expect given the prevalence throughout the, the vaccination effort of mRNA vaccines and mRNA technology, lots of announcements of that of that sort around partnerships, investment across the industry, as you might expect. But gene therapy also came up as an area of focus. And I know we've been talking about that building for a long time, conversations from Bluebird and Sarepta, that they're still gearing up for launches despite recent hurdles, whether that be, you know, having to pull drugs from the market in Europe or some, you know, maybe less than ideal phase two data, that they're still pushing forward and optimistic about their ability to launch these gene therapies in recent years and kicking off the conference with a huge announcement from Bayer that they are doubling down on their their gene therapy aspirations by tapping into CRISPR science from Mammoth Biotech in a huge deal of you know, an initial investment of 44 million, kind of up to potentially 1 billion, looking at you know five pre-selected indications and focusing on liver disease. So even though we're hearing a lot of buzz now around mRNA technology, gene therapy is certainly not going anywhere as an investment area in the next few years. Yeah, for sure. I think that's that's a hot topic that continues to just grow. And over the next couple of years, we're going to see how it plays out because there's a lot of dollars going into it right now and a lot of, I think, optimistic perspective on what gene therapy could actually represent to the healthcare system. And there's also at the same time, a lot of practical conversation that needs to occur around what gene therapy means to the structure of our healthcare system and how we balance therapies that could require a lot of upfront investment, but have long-term benefit. And so I think this is just the beginning of that conversation, right? But I'm glad it got the attention that it deserves at this conference, because I think it shows some of the movement in this area and players that we hadn't traditionally thought of that are entering into this space. For me, you know, another piece of, of the conference I found interesting was the Medicare Advantage uncertainty, which was one of the themes of the conference track. And We've talked a lot, right, about Medicare Advantage and about the aging population. And for decades, we have seen health plans, like national plans that have been really dominant in the space and have done a good job of managing loyalty and keeping their memberships high. And so it was rather interesting to see that that certain national plans like Humana and Cigna missed expectations with their book of business. And I think it speaks to just the attractiveness of this market. It's a growing market. There is a lot of opportunity and you see new entrants coming into the market and realizing that they can also offer these types of plan coverages to this population set and they can do so in ways that may differentiate them. And so like 
choice becomes a really big theme when you talk about the Medicare Advantage market. And I think it's the closest thing we have in the United States to actually a consumer market because of that choice. So I think it's no surprise that we are seeing this explosion of growth in Medicare Advantage. And I think that competitive landscape just speaks for itself, that it's going to be harder and harder for some of these larger plans to continue to keep their market share unless they do things dramatically different, right? Because it's just a law of numbers. And when there's more choice, you know that the, the market share is going to disperse a little bit more evenly throughout these books of business. So I think it's interesting. And, you know, I think some of the players that we see that had some wins because they're in growth phase are, are entities like Clover Health and Centene. And I expect that we will continue to see more entrants into this market that feel they have compatible service offerings and can actually identify with the demographics to support Medicare Advantage members. And, and they will continue to invest on how they differentiate themselves from maybe some of the more traditional plans that have anchored themselves in this marketplace for a while. There was another key area of conversation during the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference around whole health as well and whole person health. And you know, companies like One Medical, which I think recently merged with Iora Health, is publicly integrating mental health into their primary care platform. And you know, if you read about why they're doing it, it's very clear that there was studies indicating that there's a huge reduction in severe anxiety when primary care and mental health are combined and access is combined. So they're offering virtual behavioral solutions and medication as well, along with Oak Street Health. Also a company that we've kept our eyes on, Verta, which shared some research around the work that they're doing to help reverse type 2 diabetes. And, and, you know, when we think about chronic care illness, diabetes always rises to the top. And for many of us, it's always been about managing the illness. Well, I think there's been a shift in the marketplace around chronic care diseases and Verta is ahead. We're kind of leading the charge on actually reversing the disease. And I think it's, it's just incredible information. And you think about, you know, the fact that 30 million Americans suffer from diabetes, it's, it's, it's in the top 10 of the, the leading killers in America. And there's huge side effects and quality of life issues when you have it. And it costs hundreds of billions of dollars in medical bills. So I'm really kind of stoked. I think most of us were glued to the coverage of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, just waiting for the latest story each day to break on what was the topic of conversation, which partnerships were being announced, which were the key investment areas. I think another area that we were all watching closely was the pending decision on Adjuhome coverage from Medicare. And they did make their preliminary national coverage determination. So they officially plan to restrict the use to only those patients that are participating in clinical trials subject to evidence development. You'll remember when they had their, their initial approval, it was contingent on a confirmatory effectiveness trial, and that trial's planned to, to kick off in May. And it was quite interesting because right before this guidance was, was issued, Secretary Becerra directed CMS to actually reassess the monthly Medicare Part B premium for, for 2022. If you remember back in November, they announced a 14.5% hike in the Medicare Part B premium for 2022. So going up from just around $149 in 2021 to about $170 this year. And this type of reassessment, particularly so early into this year, is really un 
unprecedented, right? You know, the Part B premium has already been determined for the year. It's already being deducted for Social Security payments. So this is definitely a, a, a groundbreaking sort of decision. And part of it was based on Biogen announcing kind of before the end of last year that they were planning to half the price of their drug, originally having it around the $56,000 mark annually, dropping that down to the, the very reasonable $28,000. And just for context, if you remember, ICER has the recommended price really in the three dollars to $8,000 range. So still quite a big discrepancy there in terms of that potential pricing of the drug, particularly when you think of the breadth of the indication approval that the Aduhelm received and this the huge population that would potentially be taking this drug and impacting our, our Medicare spend. When I think about this as a headline story, it has been in the news almost nonstop since the first day of approval. It's a prevalent disease, right? It impacts so many people and impacts a patient's life. And, and we think about the timeline of the last therapy that's been offered for Alzheimer's, and that was 13 years ago. So of course there was pressure to meet all this unmet need that's in the marketplace. When I think about this though, it's, it's, it's bigger than just Biogen, right? I think it's a story about the FDA as well and the series of actions that were taken that to many were just so confounding. And when we think about the need to have public trust in our agencies, this is one of those case studies I think we'll look back on and talk about what did the, I don't want to say it was suggest there was a rush to approval, but what did some of these missteps or perceived missteps by the FDA create in terms of a public trust issue? You know, in a population where we know this disease is life altering, right? And so it's like, you have a lot of advocacy for Alzheimer's patients. And, you know, I wonder on some level if the FDA just, I don't want to say they caved to it, but were influenced by it. And so I think this, this headline goes beyond what Biogen brought to the marketplace. I think it is also a story of our public health agencies and how they played up a role in this that led up to this becoming a headline news on a daily basis and, and not in in the most positive way. I mean, that's the sad part about all of this when I think about it is, is that this should have been a celebration of a drug that could really help disease progression and address so much unmet need. But ultimately what the headline news has been about is really about price, value, questioning whether there was backdoor deals going on. And, and that's the shame in it because ultimately who gets affected are the patients that still are looking for a therapy that can address this really, really terrible disease. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to see play out, particularly, I, I'm sure this won't be the first we hear related to, to the Algehome decision, but particularly as Eli Lilly is preparing for their candidate in the same class as well to, to address this, to your point, Mindy, devastating disease for so many Americans. As always, Mindy and Ryan, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what news we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.